Have you heard of the first great awakening? Uh, maybe you have. It was a revival that took place in the United States colonies in the 1730s all the way through the 1770s. And in a time when people's hearts had grown cold, when church service was just like an intellectual exchange, something happened. People began to be set on fire with religious devotion again. They started reading their Bibles in their homes and God was really moving. If you look at the cause of the first great awakening, uh, you know, revivals, they don't happen in vacuums. There's like factors that lead to it. And there are some people that like precipitate these great revivals. And if you look at the factors of the first great awakening, you kind of can see three things uh, or three groups or three people. Number one, there's a group called the Moravians. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Moravian community, but the Moravians started a prayer meeting that went for 24 hours a day and it lasted over 100 years. I mean, incredible. So a hundred year prayer meeting really precipitates uh, this great awakening. And the Moravians, they were in Europe, they tried to start communities in the American colonies and they tried to start in the state of Georgia, but it didn't really work out. It didn't happen. But the Moravians impacted a young man by the name of John Wesley. Maybe you've heard of John Wesley before. John Wesley went to one of their meetings and he was so awestruck by the Moravians. Uh, there was a time when a great storm arose up and people were freaking out, but the Moravians, they had great faith and they weren't scared and it just attracted John Wesley. And so he went to one of their meetings and in one of their meetings, he talks about an experience he had where his heart is strangely warmed. And that moment in John Wesley's life was a changing point for him. And, you know, religion was no more about a mental thing, but it was about all of your affections towards God. And this moment drove John Wesley. And then John Wesley uh, became an instructor for a young man named George Whitfield. And Whitfield soon became, uh, he just soared into national fame as the boy preacher. He was lavishly praised. In his day, he was compared to Moses, to David, to John Wycliffe as the morning star of the Second Reformation. So if you look at like who's responsible for the Great Awakening, these are kind of three people, three groups. You got the Moravians, you got John Wesley, and you got George Whitfield. The thing about George Whitfield is he became, he did something in 1739 that really wasn't being done. He took the gospel outside of the church and he began to preach out in open fields in the outdoors. He started with coal miners out in Bristol. And you might think outdoor preachers, big deal. Well, at that point, that wasn't done. And so George Whitfield starts gathering unchurched, massive amount of people. And people start getting saved. And this is really precipitating a great revival. John Wesley also preached and he reluctantly started preaching in the field because George Whitfield was doing it. And it was very successful. But the difference between George Whitfield and John Wesley is that Wesley started organizing those who had been converted. So Whitfield won many converts. He had thousands of people showing up. He was a great speaker, but Wesley decided to organize and instruct them. And if you look at history, if you think, well, who was the most impactful? Was it George Whitfield or was it John Wesley? Whitfield could gather great crowds, but Wesley organized the people into, he called them societies, but what they were, they were small groups. 
He started small groups of people and he began to disciple people. John Wesley actually said he is not going to go preach where he can't start small groups because he says that's like having children, but then just leaving them out to die because you're not taking care of new converts. And so Wesley, he organizes people into groups so they could be shepherded into small groups. Wesley strategically built a process that became known as Methodism. You ever heard of the Methodist church before? Did you know that the Methodist church was the largest and most influential denomination in America in the 19th century? Why? It's because John Wesley took the fire of revival and he organized it into small groups so people could be trained. Why are they called Methodists? It's because he started a methodical way in which the Christian faith can be carried out. And so who has the largest impact over time, George Whitfield or John Wesley? I think you could argue that it is John Wesley because he organized people into groups. You know what it makes me think about the very first church in Acts chapter two and verse 42. You know what's amazing about this first church is that it starts out miraculously. It starts out with fire from heaven falls on them. They're speaking in new tongues. There's a glory from another realm. There's fire, there's power, there's glory. There's miracles happening. There's people getting up and walking that couldn't walk before. And and you know what they do, the first church, you know what they do with that fire and that power and that glory? They come together and they form small groups. What would you do with fire and power and glory? Man, I'd be blowing it up on social media. Get in the house of God. The glory is here. Everybody come. But what does the early church do? They form into small communities of faith and they practice the way of Jesus together, just like John Wesley. Let's read it here. Acts chapter two, verse 42. It says, all the believers, all the believers (laughs) devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property, possessions, shared money with those in need. They worshiped at the temple together day by day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to those who are being saved. Come on, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I love that. Take the fire and power of revival and channel it into small groups of people that are devoted to one another. Today, I wanna talk to you about what church is. And here's what church is not. Church is not a place you go to or an event you attend. Church is a spiritual family that I belong to. I want to say that again. A church is not a place I go to or an event I attend. Church is a spiritual family that I belong to. Our goal for the year, our mission, our vision for the year is to be a church for all people. All people, that's our theme. And if we're going to be a church for all people, if we're going to be what God has called us to be, church has to become much less about attending events together, seeing each other, once every few weeks and waving at each other and saying hi. But really church has to become what God has called it. He calls it the household of faith. He calls it a family. And so today I wanna just take this word family 
And I'm going to do my best Rick Warren impression today. I have uh, a good across, I have a word for each uh, letter and family. You know what that means? I got six points. Man, I guess I, I better get going and get started and get rolling. So let's get going. Church is a family. All right, number one, F. For this, I wrote the word fortify. Fortify. What do I mean by fortify? I mean to encourage each other. To encourage means to put courage into someone. The word fortify means to build up. When we encourage someone, when someone encourages us, they are putting courage in us. They are building us up. Let me ask you a question. Who is encouraging you regularly to walk out a life worthy of your calling? We need people in our lives who will daily encourage us. I used to think people who needed encouragement were weak. Honestly, I did. I thought people that needed encouragement all the time were weak. I thought, you know, the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Why don't you just encourage yourself? Why do you need someone else to encourage you? But now I realize, no, 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 no. This is what the family of God is for. It's to encourage each other daily to follow after God. We all need a Barnabas in our life. Maybe you've heard of this guy, Barnabas, he's in Acts chapter four. Did you know Barnabas is not even his real name? Hey, I'm your pastor and I've read the Bible several times, but I just realized that Barnabas is a nickname for a guy in Acts chapter four. It's not even his real name. His real name was Joseph. You see at Acts 4.36, it says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. There was a man in the New Testament who we don't even remember his real name because his nickname so describes who he is. He is someone who is an encourager. And we find Barnabas several times, like Acts 14, 22, it says that he strengthens the souls of the, the disciples. He encourages them in the faith. You know what I like about Barnabas is that Barnabas wrote no books of the New Testament, not one. But actually, I believe you can give him credit for 14 out of the 27 books. I believe Barnabas is responsible for 52% of the New Testament. Why? Because he encouraged and he fortified the faith of two others who gave us uh, our New Testament. Number one, he encouraged a guy named Paul. Ever heard of him? Let me tell you something. The church wouldn't have Paul if it wasn't for Barnabas. Paul was persecuting the church he has a great conversion. He comes to Christ. But none of the other disciples want anything to do with Paul because they're scared of him. They thought, man, this guy, he's really just a Trojan horse. He's not really serving God. But Barnabas takes a risk. He sees something in Paul, in this young man, and he takes him to the apostles. And he says, no, 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 what's happening in Paul's life is real. He's seen the Lord. You need to listen to him. So Barnabas encourages Paul brings him to the disciples and says, no, he's one of us. I think of chapter 11 in Acts when Barnabas is called to go and to visit the church at Antioch because some Gentiles are being saved. And you know what Barnabas does before he goes to Antioch? He goes and he finds again Paul. I don't know if you know this or not, but at the end of chapter nine, Paul returns to his hometown. Paul goes back to Damascus and a lot of scholars believe that Paul was probably back in his hometown for 10 years. 
a decade after seeing the Lord, a decade after having an encounter with Jesus Christ, and the Lord tells him, you're going to go to the nations. You're going to tell the world about me. And for 10 years, he probably had to move back in his mama's house in Damascus for a little while. He's by himself in Damascus. And Barnabas comes and finds him and says, you know what? There was something about that Paul I remembered. He could be of use. He could be of help to me. And he encourages Paul and he brings Paul alongside him. And eventually Paul becomes known as the guy who takes the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. What is that? That's someone who sees God at work in another person and encourages them and draws that out. This is why we need, you, you need a spiritual family. Man, you need someone who sees the gifts of God in you and can pull them out of you and encourages you. Barnabas is also responsible for a guy named John Mark. You see, John Mark was a guy that had gone on a mission trip with him, Paul, and Barnabas. And John Mark flaked out on the mission trip and returns home. He got, I don't know what happened, he flakes out. And later on, when Paul's going on another missionary journey, Barnabas tries to bring John Mark again. And Paul's like, nah, man. Like, I ain't bringing him. He flaked out last time. And what ends up happening is Barnabas goes and he finds John Mark anyway. And he takes John Mark with him and he encourages him in the Lord. And you know, it's very possible that John Mark would have not ever recovered if it wasn't for a guy named Barnabas, who even though he had messed up, even though he flaked out before, he called him, brought him to him and said, you know what? I still see good in you. So we need someone who will encourage us. John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. It is very possible that Mark's gospel and Paul's letters, we wouldn't have them if it wasn't for an encourager named Barnabas. We all need someone who will fortify our faith. That's the F in family. We also need people who are allies in the faith. That's the A, allies. What is an ally? An ally is someone who is associated with another as a helper. It's a person or group that provides assistance and support in ongoing effort, activity, or struggle. You know what an ally is? An ally is someone who doesn't stand on the sidelines, but someone who gets in the struggle with you. They get in the fight with you. An ally is a comrade who fights arms, arm in arms with you. We need people that will get in the fight with us. We need allies. You know, the early church had such a camaraderie, but that camaraderie, that fellowship they had, it wasn't centered around potluck dinners and Coca-Cola, as much as I love those things. Their communion, their fellowship centered around that they were on mission together. And it was a worldwide mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was life or death. It was an all-out giving of their selves in this cause, and they had to be united. They had to be together. I like what David Mathis says. He says, true fellowship is a lot less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl. And it's more like the players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the background only in preparation for the next down. True fellowship is like the troops invading side by side at the beach of Normandy. What am I saying? Allies, fellowship, the family is about practicing the way of Jesus together. It's not about just getting together in small groups to talk about our preferences. John Tyson says this. He says, one of the greatest challenges of our current culture is that we think small church groups or small groups in church exist as places where we can show up to share our preferences and opinions on the quality of the other Christian events we have attended. So people show up 
and they just talk about what they did or didn't get out of something or what they did or didn't like about something as if church is just an Amazon review. Ouch, that one hurts a little bit. But think about it. When we get together with other church people, are we really allies? What does it mean to be an ally? It means you're gathered around a mission. You're gathered around practices. Did you read that scripture earlier? This is what the church did when they got together. They didn't get together and talk about, oh man, the pastor was on fire last week. Or, oh man, the pastor hadn't preached a good one. Or, oh, they're not singing the songs I like. Or, I love this song. The early church didn't get together and talk about their preferences. The early church got together and they practiced the way of Jesus together. They got together and they, there was teaching and there was fellowship and there was breaking of bread and there was prayer and there was generosity and there was worship and there was praise. When we get together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, are we committed to doing and practicing the way of Jesus together or are we just committed to sharing our opinions with one another? Because just sharing our, that's not gonna do anything. That just makes us consumers. No, 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 we need allies. We need people in the fight with us. We don't need any more critics in the church. We got plenty of people criticizing the church. But you know what we don't have a lot? is people embodying what the church actually should be. Anybody can point out the flaws. We all see them. They're terribly obvious to the world. But where are the people that don't just point out the flaws, but they live and show the right way? They're in the fight. They're in the mission together. I like what Theodore Roosevelt said. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. What is real fellowship? It's when we're locked arm in arm in the mission of God together. It's where we're struggling together. We're allies on the battlefield of the Lord. You need someone to fortify your faith. You need someone who will hop in the fight with you. You need an ally. And the next thing about family that I see here, this one's a little different, but family, the M is messy. Community is messy. Church is messy. It's not neat. There's drama in community. There's fighting and disagreements and hurtful words. And then when you get to know someone just beyond waving and saying hi, you realize, wow, these people are just as broken as I am. These people are just as jacked up as I am. Their family, their marriage is struggling just as like mine is. We are family. And you know what? Everyone's family, your family has drama. Weddings, Thanksgiving, reunions, there's going to be drama. There's always a wooly booger in every family. That's what my wife and I, we call, everybody's got that one person in their family you're not too proud of, we call them wooly boogers. Every family has them, every church has them, every small group has them. There's, dra there's drama because community, family is messy. And we have to lay down our idol of community. Lay down our idealized version of community. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, every human idealized image that is brought into Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. It must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself 
become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Now, let me tell you how my daddy says it, Terry Harris. This is his version of that. He says, people come to church looking for the ideal, but they wind up with an ordeal, and now they're all looking for a new deal. <laughs> Listen, church is messy. Community is messy. And we have to get past our ideology of what it should look like. And we have to learn to love the people that are right in front of us. We have to learn to let the messy in and be okay with the messy. You know what messy looks like? It looks like letting our guard down, being open and honest with someone, telling, opening up about your struggles and your weaknesses with other people. That's messy. I'm not saying you should go around telling everyone all your business. In fact, please don't. But we all need someone. We all need a brother and sister in Christ that we can get a little messy with, that we can open up our life. Remember how I talked about John Wesley organized people into small groups? One of those small groups was called, they called them bands, B-A-N-D-S. They were bands. And at a band meeting, it was a group of maybe five people or less, a very small group of people. John Wesley had questions that everyone would ask each other. Now this is messy. This ain't facade church. Look, getting in a room with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And here are some of the questions that John Wesley would have people ask each other in band meetings. He'd say, what sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you been met with? What have you thought or said that you doubt whether it was sin or not? I like this one. He says, are you keeping any secrets? <laughs> Wow, come on now, that's getting up in people's business right there. That's messy, but it works. Chris Hodges says this, if you're the only one who knows your secrets, then you're in trouble. I'm preaching, that's good. If you're the only one who knows your secrets, you're in trouble. James 5.16 says it like this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Listen, someone needs to know your secrets. Someone needs to know what's really going on inside of you. If you have secrets and no one knows about it, you're in trouble. You say, well, I can confess to God. That's true, you can confess to God. Forgiveness comes from God, but healing, this is what the scripture says, confess so you can be healed. You might get forgiveness from God, but you're walking around wounded and you're gonna repeat some things because you won't confess to another brother or sister in Christ. You won't open up with a few small people. I'm not telling you to tell everybody, but somebody needs to know. Somebody needs to get in the mess of your life. Community is messy. Forgiveness comes from God, but healing comes from confessing to one another. That's the M, the I, the I. For me today, that represents intercession intercession. We need someone who's going to pray for us. We need someone who's going to intercede for us. Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Eight of the 13, Paul asks for prayer. Think about that for a minute. The great apostle, the man who'd been taken to the third heavens, and seen things and heard things from God we could only imagine or dream or wish would happen for us. Yet, he is asking people again and again, will you pray for me? 
He asks, pray for me, help me to proclaim the good news about Christ. Pray for me that I would be accepted by other believers in town. Pray for me for the deliverance from people who oppose me. Pray for me from difficult circumstances and imprisonment. Pray that I would be able to visit the people I'm writing to. Paul is always asking people to pray for him. If Paul needed someone to pray for him, so do you and I. There's a story about Moses in the Old Testament when he's up on the mountain and Joshua's leading the troops to the valley and there's a great battle taking place and Moses holds up his hands, he holds up his staff over Joshua fighting in the valley and as long as Moses is holding up that staff, victory is taking place. But whenever Moses drops his hands, his arms grow tired, there is no victory in the battle. Moses grows tired. But along aside him comes a guy named Aaron and her. They get on either side of him and they hold up the hand and they say, you can rest, Moses. You can rest. We got you. We got you. Listen, if the man who parted a sea needed two friends to hold up his arms when he was tired, so do you and I. We need people in our lives that are going to pray for us. And I'll be honest, this is my favorite part about small groups. We call them C groups here at the crossing. I have a few different C groups, but hands down, probably my most favorite C group is the one that holds dearest to my heart is the men that I meet with on Wednesday morning for early morning prayer. I love getting to hear from them. I love hearing their prayer requests because then I know what's really going on in their families, in their work, in their lives. I feel more connected to them when I pray with them. I feel a soul level connection. It's not just people I shake hands with anymore, but these are guys that I labor in prayer with. These are guys who lay hands on me. When I feel the onslaught of the enemy, they lay hands on me and pray for me. If you really want community, if you really want family, find some people you can pray with. Pray for one another. This past Wednesday, man, it was so rich for me. I love coming in and hearing the men just pray and cry out to God. The presence of God was so strong. It stirs me up. I love to hear a good concert of prayer. Those are some of my favorite, most memorable moments, being in places where the family of God is lifting up cries unto God. I believe prayer unites our hearts by the Spirit, and we pray in concert with one another, and we have heaven's attention. You need someone to pray for you. You need someone to intercede for you. L, this was an easy one. Love, love. Family's about love. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. May you also are to love one another. By this, all people, there's that word again, all people, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They were to love one another as Jesus had loved them. They had seen Jesus' love for them. And now as he gets near the end of the life, they'll see how Jesus is going to lay down his life for them. You know, the law of Moses said, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus gives a new command here. He says, the standard is no longer love someone as you love yourself. Now the standard is love someone like I love you. Love someone. Lay your life down for your family the way I'm laying my life down for you. This is, 
This is a supernatural love. We can't achieve this on our own. This has to be produced in us by the Holy Spirit. He has to transform our hearts that we lay down our life for one another. Supernatural love is what distinguishes us from the world. Jesus said the the way we love one another, the way we come together as a family, that is how the world will know that we belong to him. We got to come alongside of one another and do what Galatians 2 says. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love. What is a burden? A burden is, in the Greek, it means baros. It's literally a heavy weight or a stone. Someone that someone has been required to carry for a long distance. Figuratively, it came to mean any oppressive ordeal, a hardship that was difficult to bear. A burden is a boulder, and you cannot carry a boulder by yourself. Who's committed to you right now that will be there to help you shoulder the burden? Who's going to be there for you? This is why we have the family. Because when you're walking through hell, man, the family comes alongside you. And they love you. And they show the world what it's like to lay down our lives for one another. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. He says, for when we were in Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. Notice how Paul's comforted. It's not by the prayer of Titus. It's by the presence of Titus. God's comfort, this is what John Stott says, God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord, but through the companionship of a friend, and through the good news which he brought. Human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens is a part of God's purpose for his people. We should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but we should seek a Christian friend who will help them bear them with us. We all need each other. We need the family of God. And here's the last one, the why, the why. For this, I put yearn, yearn. There must be a deep soul-level commitment to one another. Philippians 1.8 says this, For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ. Paul, he's not embarrassed to express his strong desire for his Philippian family. He says, God will even bear witness how much I yearn for you. Only God can measure this love because it exceeds human love. And the word here, uh, yearning, it's, it's literally like a, something you feel in your inward parts, in your bowels. It's a deep soul level, compassion, affection, commitment to the Philippians. This is how Paul longs for the Philippians. If we're gonna be the church, You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to be committed to one another. Go back to the very first scripture we read today where it says, in the the first church, all the people devoted themselves. Commitment. You know what the church needs right now? It needs a fresh renewal in commitment. Commitment to one another. Soul level commitment. The early church was devoted to one another. They met daily together. Daily, (laughs) y'all. 
Not once a week for church. They met daily. Why did they meet daily? Because the resurrection of Jesus did not just change the way they did a once a week event called church. It literally changed everything. Everything. They were committed to one another. I think about Acts 2.42, and I like John Tyson. He rewrote it. Instead of the New Living Translation, he called this the preference-based edition. And he says, when you live your life on preference rather than commitment, rather than devotion, this is what Acts 2.42 looks like. It says, they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they can fit it in. They prayed when they needed something, got coffee every now and then. They were content without and they had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity, but kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people, and occasionally someone was randomly saved. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. That's what a preference-based commitment looks like rather than a deep devotion to one another. Listen to me, church. We've got to come back to this devotion to one another. Here's what I found out about many people. Everybody wants community. Everybody wants family, but very few are willing to commit to what it takes to actually have community and family. Community is a commitment. And we'll say that again. Community is a commitment. What's your commitment level like right now? We're fixing to launch into small group season. You know what? If you're going to sign up for a small group, I encourage you to sign up for one. But if you sign up for it, I challenge you to commit to it. You know what commitment doesn't look like? It doesn't look like 10 minutes before small group is supposed to start. You send one little text that says, sorry, can't make it today. That is not commitment. No, when you sign up for something, you say, you know what, I'm in. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you. It's not going to be easy, but that's what commitment is. You think the early church had it easy? No, it was very hard, but they were committed to one another. Why? Because they were family, family. A lot of people want the full-time benefits of community, but they're only putting in a part-time effort. My goodness, I could preach that all day long. I'm challenging you today. Get committed to the family of God. Get committed to encouraging, fortifying each other. Get committed to getting in the fight, having an ally with one another. Get committed to being in the mess of people's life. Get committed to interceding for one another, loving one another, and yearning for one another in Christ. I'm telling you, it can make all the difference in the world. One of the ladies that works here at the church, her name's Cindy. Y'all know Cindy. Come on, Cindy's the best. And uh, I love Cindy's story about the power of small groups. Not just attending church, but the power of small groups. 10 years ago, Cindy walked into our church doors and she was met by a lady named Marita. And the very first Sunday that she was here, Marita said, hey, you should come to my small group. You should, we called them, I think we called them cell groups back then. <laughs> we had all sorts, we used to call them cell groups. Then we called them, you know, life groups. And now we're calling them C groups. So who knows what's next? But for now it's C groups. 
Marita invited Cindy to her C group, and it was that group. Why she, she says, it's that group is the reason I'm still here today. I, my walk with the Lord was because I got connected with a group of awesome women that helped walk me and many others through the hardest times of our lives. My life was changed. Marita was a spiritual mother for me the moment I started, and even today is. It's not about the masses. It's not about the thousands. It's about, like John Wesley knew, getting people into small groups where they can get into each other's lives and be a committed family to each other, to carrying out the mission of God together. If we're gonna be a church for all people, we're gonna have to be committed to each other like family, because that's who we are. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray for those who are watching and they're longing. They want that commitment, but they feel left out or they feel maybe, they feel like their church experience was nothing like Acts 2.42. Lord, I pray for those that are watching. I pray that they would get committed to the family of God. And I believe if they'll get committed to one another, then they'll experience what the believers in Acts experienced. I pray you'd help us to be a church for all people. Help us, Lord God, to love one another just like you have loved us. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen, amen. All right, church, we're family, okay? So look, come join the family, nine o'clock, 11 on Sunday, or always right here, 10 a.m., virtual church. We'll see you soon.